Well, today we're going to depart from our study of Ecclesiastes and turn to Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 5. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. I felt like Ecclesiastes was a bit heavy for Christmas time. And, uh, you know, it, it, it bursts our bubble a lot about life. So we're going to enter into the joy of Christmas here this morning from Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Not maybe one of the typical text you see at Christmas, but it is so appropriate for us this morning. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is God's word to us. Well, the word nostalgia comes from two Greek words that are combined. It's a compound word. Nostos, which means to return home or homecoming. And algos, which means pain or ache. So return home or homecoming and then pain or ache. So nostalgia uh, is, is homesickness or a, a yearning for the past or the good old days. It was actually coined by a, a medical student in the 17th century to describe the anxieties displayed by Swiss mercenaries fighting away from home. They were experiencing nostalgia for their home. Well, for many of us, Christmas is a time of nostalgia, a time full of memories, good time with family, the decorations, the gifts, and the favorite carols we sing. The carols themselves can make us nostalgic as it brings back memories from the past. It's a powerful force in our lives, nostalgia is. And it can take over our celebration of Christmas to the point where we're simply reveling in the celebration itself and not getting to the real purpose behind celebrating Christmas. There is fun in having a party in and of itself. Or on the flip side, we can spend the holiday in such pain as we remember loved ones, perhaps, who are no longer at our feasting table. Or as we long for the good old days that have passed that we do not experience the true joy that comes from remembering, as everyone says, the reason for the season. Well, that's why I picked these two verses today. If you have uh, lost track of why you're celebrating or if you're really hurting because of the loss of a loved one, perhaps, or if you're just isolated for more than usual because of this pandemic that we're going through, uh, whatever your case is, I want us all to set our mind's eyes and our hearts squarely on what Christmas is all about. Maybe a, call it a, a great reset of our hearts and to focus in on what Christmas is all about and what is that, of course, the birth of Jesus Christ. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son... But why are we celebrating the birth of Jesus? Certainly it is amazing that God took on human flesh, the incarnation, 
and was born of a virgin, a virgin birth. That is truly amazing. It's a miracle. And it's important. And we do celebrate birthdays. But birthdays aren't the most important thing about a person, are they? I mean, we are, we're born, that happens to you once, and then it's in the past. And every year you may celebrate your birthday, and as you get older it becomes less important until you get to the point where you, you no longer want to have birthdays because they're stacking up pretty high. So it's not just about being born that is important. It's your life that is important. We're born to live. And the same is true of Jesus. We do celebrate his birth, his amazing, miraculous birth. But we celebrate it because of what he did in his life. And the most important thing he did in his life was die. He was born to die. We sang it in the, in the, in the words of the carols we sang. Born to die. Well, Matthew 1, where Joseph is having second thoughts about marrying, uh, marrying Mary, he's considering these things, it says there, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he's a cute baby, no, for he will save his people from their sins. And when the angels announced to the shepherds, what did they say? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a cute baby lying in a man. No, a Savior, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Even when Jesus' birth was announced, the focus was on the fact that he was going to be a, a Savior. And how did he save us? He died for sinners, such as we are. Well, this passage lays it out for us in a, in a particular way, in the way Paul's describing it to the Galatians. And I want us to see four things here this morning. We want to look at God's plan, God's process, God's person, and finally God's purpose. And first of all, we see God has a plan. And that's something that we should celebrate at Christmas, that God had a plan. When the fullness of time had come, that indicates a plan, the fullness of time, a divine plan, because God is the one that acted when the fullness of time had come. There was a spot in history marked out by God when the Son of God would enter the world and would save sinners. You see it in the book of John, you know, there's a repetition of Jesus' words and John's words as he describes what Jesus is doing. Uh, when, when Jesus changes the water into wine, uh, he first says to Mary, you know, my hour has not yet come. And then there's an episode where the people, uh, the Pharisees particularly, want to kill Jesus because of some of the things that he said. And he passes through them and he leaves and they can't get him because, as John says, his hour had not yet come. But there is a point where the hour comes. And it's at that point where some Greeks come and they talk to the disciples and say, Sir, we want to see Jesus. 
And we never hear of any interaction between the Greeks and Jesus. We only hear what Jesus says immediately when it's told that these Greeks have come to see him. He says, the hour has come. The hour has come. And, of course, that's right before he died. It was the hour. It was in the fullness of time. It was complete. It was ready. It was time for Jesus to do something for sinners. It's part of God's plan, Jesus entering into the world in space and time. It's not some theoretical thing or some spiritual thing. It is a physical baby that came to die for sinners. And not just any old baby, but a divine baby, God himself. And that brings me to the second point. Not only does God have a plan that he's executing here because he cares about sinners such as us, but God has a process. God sent. In the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. God sent his son. God saved us with his right arm, as the Old Testament often says. God saw that there was no one, there was no man that could save anyone. So he did it himself. God became a man. God so loved the world. And as I pointed out to you many times, that's not saying that God so loved the world that he was just aching with love. No, it means that God loved the world in this way. God demonstrated in a very specific way. God showed his love in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent his son on a mission. And God, Jesus said, often, I have come to do my Father's will. I do what the Father tells me. He has come on a mission to save sinners such as we are. And that's why we celebrate the birth of Christ, because he entered the world to save us. He was sent by the Father to save us. And that's God's process. That was his plan that he hatched for a specific time in history. And then we see God's person. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. It's his son, and we've sung it this morning. God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created, O come, let us adore him. Very God, begotten, not created. The hymn writer here is quoting from the Nicene Creed, that ancient creed that we said last week or the week before. I can't remember exactly, but in that creed it says, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. What a glorious being he is. And he is the one who came to save us. And that's why we celebrate his birth. The Savior is born, the one that is God of God and light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, one substance with the Father. Now these words that we believe here from the creed, uh, that's not, that, they, those, that belief, that theology was in jeopardy early on in Christianity. And it's interesting because it's tied in with 
St. Nicholas. You know, Santa Claus and St. Nicholas are all intertwined. And the reason that is, is that St. Nicholas, who was a saint in the 300s or a, a churchman of the 300s, uh, that era of Christianity, um, he, he, his, his feast day is December 6th. And uh, in Germany, uh, he was considered the patron saint of children. So around Christmas time, of course, December 6th is in that area. There, the legend and the, the, the belief that St. Nicholas, the patron saint of children, would bring gifts to children, and that's why we have gift giving, and that morphed into Santa Claus somehow or another in history. But St. Nicholas was not some jolly fat guy wearing a red suit. He was a defender of the faith like no other. Uh, he, he was at the Council of Nicaea, where we got the beginnings of this creed, Nicene Creed. In 325, the Council of Nicaea met because there was a controversy going on called the Arian Controversy. Arius was a heretic, and Arius and his followers denied the full divinity of the Lord Jesus. And one story that has come down about Nicholas's attendance at the Council of, of Nicaea is that he was so upset with the way that Arius' teaching degraded the Lord Jesus into just a glorified creature that he actually punched Arius in the ear. He just whacked him upside the head. So that's uh, a little different than the St. Nicholas we think of in all the stories. But he was a defender of the faith. The one that came to save us was very God, a very God, not some glorified being. But what a special thing that is to celebrate, that God himself saw our plight and he did something about it himself. And it goes on and says here in this little phrase, he was born of woman. He took on human flesh in other, other words. He became a human being. He was fully God and fully human, and he remains fully God and fully human. And he was born under the law. Now, what does it mean to be born under the law? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to, on to the next point and answer that because it's tied in with the purpose that God has for us. God's purpose was to redeem those who were under the law. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Christ coming into the world had a purpose. He was born under the law for a purpose, to save or to redeem those who were under the law. So what does it mean to be under the law? Well, the law has elements to it, doesn't it? it, it when we think about the law, the Ten Commandments, or the Great Commandment, uh, the second greatest commandment, love God, love others. Um, every law has kind of a positive and negative side. There's a duty that is required, and there's some things that are forbidden. There's some things we're supposed to do, some things that we're not supposed to do. And sometimes, for example, in the Ten Commandments, you have the commandments expressed in both ways. Positively, honor your father and mother. That's a positive command, something you should, should do. Or we have the negative ones, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, etc. Now, thou shalt not kill has an implied duty connected to it. 
Not only are we forbidden from killing, but we are also enjoined to preserve life anytime we, all the time. So each command has a positive and negative side to it. And that's one way of saying it. It's got a duty and something that's forbidden. It also has penalties attached to it. Uh, the, the, the consequences of breaking the law. They're there. And Paul has been talking about this. If you back up to chapter 3, verse 10, he's, he's making the case here. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one can keep the commandments perfectly. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. All the things, meaning all the positives and the negatives, all the duties required and all the things forbidden. We are required to always, every moment of our lives, to keep God's law, to do everything that is required, and we are forbidden from doing the things that are wrong. And of course, it is evident, as Paul says, that no one has done that. We have fallen short, and that's an understatement. It's like someone long jumping the Grand Canyon. You know, I, I tried to long jump a little bit when I was running track, and, and that didn't work out well because I just wanted to go high. I didn't want to go far. I was a high jumper, and I had the problem of jumping up into the air. Not that I was fast enough to be a good long jumper anyway. But, you know, I could, I could try to long jump the Grand Canyon, and then I could probably get out about 15 feet or so. And, and Bob Beeman or... Carl Lewis, some of these Olympic guys, they could double me almost because they've jumped like 29 feet. But we went to the Grand Canyon here a while back, and you know what the fate of anybody trying to long jump the Grand Canyon is going to be? You're going to be scraping yourself up off the bottom. So, hey, some people are pretty good, pretty moral people. Some people are not. But everybody's broken the law, and everybody's falling short, way short of God's standard of holiness. And that's what Paul is saying. No one is justified by God before the law. So we're all under the law. We're under the law. We are required to keep the law. When Jesus was born, he was born under the law. He took on human flesh, and those requirements and those things that were forbidden applied to him as well. Yet, he jumped the Grand Canyon. He kept it perfectly. He never sinned in thought, word, deed, attitude of his heart. He was perfect because he was God. And that's why Paul says, uh, The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ was born under the law so that he could do what we failed to do. He perfectly kept the law because we can't do it. And when we embrace him by faith, not only do we get credited with our sins being forgiven because Christ was 
hung on the cross and bore the curse of our law-breaking, all the righteousness that he did in his life, in his death, is credited to our account. That's how we are saved. That's the way it's happening. It's by faith. It's by trusting in him. Now, what was going on in Galatia? Why is Paul writing this letter? Because these people were being told by some folks coming in from the outside that Christ was okay, but if you really wanted to make sure you're in heaven, you needed to add a few observances and, and a few extra rules and laws to your life, and, and that's what's going to get you over the top. Jesus plus this other observance as well. They were called Judaizers. They were trying to get these folks to go back to the Jewish law and follow the rules and the celebrations and the ceremonies. And the apostles of Paul was saying, no, no, no. You don't need anything but Christ. You, you can't add anything to his work. You, you cannot save yourself in any way, shape, or form. It's all by faith in Jesus alone. He has come. He is God he has done everything that we need. He is completely sufficient. And when you start adding something to the gospel, you've lost the gospel. Derek Thomas calls it the damnable plus. When you say Jesus plus something, you, you're, you're, you're damning yourself. You, all you need is Jesus. And in verse 4, if you see there, it starts with buts. We're jumping into the middle of a discussion. He's, he's been talking about this previous condition before the Son of God was sent forth. And verse 3 sums it up for us in a few words, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He uses that phrase several times here in chapter 3 and 4. The word translated elementary principles, broadly speaking, has two meanings. It can mean like, kind of like the ABCs, the very basics, like what, you would, uh, what children would learn at elementary school. In, the me in this meeting, Paul is speaking of the law as the elementary principles. Look at verse three, chapter 3, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now look at verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now look at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years... I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You see, these Galatians were originally pagans. And then they became Christians through Paul's preaching. You can read about that in Acts 16. But after Paul left to continue his missionary journeys, the Galatians were being influenced by this group who were coming in saying, you need to observe all these things, these extra things. Now, when they were pagans... They worshipped false gods and observed pagan festivals that occurred at certain days and months and years. So the pattern was a familiar one to them because when they were pagans, they observed days and months and years. And now these Judaizers are coming in and saying, you need to add some days and months and years 
to your observances, to your Christianity, to your faith in Christ. And Paul's saying, there's no difference. You've created another false religion when you add something to Christ. See, there's a second basic meaning to the word elementary principles. It refers to the elemental spirits of the universe. It can mean the, like the four basic elements that people held to back in the Greek, Greek days, earth, fire, air, and water, or the heavenly bodies, sun, moon, and stars. These things were worshipped by pagans. And that's what Paul's referring to in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And he asks, how can you turn back again to those weak and worthless elementary principles? See, they were doing the same thing by following a set of rules in order to save themselves. And they were doing it when they were pagans, and now they're doing it again as Christians, but they've lost the gospel. See, whatever religion and its rules you follow trying to earn salvation yourself is doomed to failure. Following the Ten Commandments in order to earn salvation is no more effective than sacrificing children to Molech. It's basically the same thing. They both result in condemnation. Now, don't get me wrong. The law is a good thing. That's what Paul's saying. The law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. That's the purpose of the law. The law is not meant to save you. It's meant to show you that you need a Savior. The law, using the law as a means of salvation is like trying to drive a nail in with a shoe. Now be honest, everybody's tried that before. You don't have a hammer handy and you grab a shoe and you're trying to maybe hang a picture or something and you're in your bedroom and you get your shoe out and it doesn't work very well and you go, I wish I had a hammer. That's what I'm talking about. If you set out to try and save yourself by keeping the law, the only thing you're going to find out is that you need something else to save you because you cannot do it. It's not going to work. That's what Paul means when he says the, the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. It's a way to bring us to the end of ourselves and to make us realize, I need Jesus. I need someone outside myself to save me because I am failing at this, at keeping the law. I cannot do it. And Paul is saying, look, don't turn back to that way of thinking, that's our default mode, to think that we can save ourselves or that God will like us better because we've done certain things, observed certain things, or practiced certain things. All we need is to trust in Christ, to be united to him by faith. Because what did Christ do? He redeemed those who were under the law. He did it. He completed it. Complete redemption. That word redemption means to be bought out of slavery. We were enslaved to certain things. See, we were enslaved to sin. We were under the condemnation of sin. And he freed us from that. He paid the price that we wouldn't be condemned anymore. And we received the adoption as sons. Now, that's not sexist, as I always mention. Uh, when we talk about adoption, Paul's using the language of the day because who, when you, when you were a, uh, when you got an inheritance, who, who got the inheritance in a family? It was the sons. Daughters didn't get an inheritance. So Paul's writing to these Galatians, the Galatian church, which is full of men and women. And he's saying, you've all received adoption as sons. 
Not that you're men, but that you, your status is one of a son and you are being adopted into God's family and you are all, whether you're a woman, a man, you're all receiving an inheritance. You're joint heirs with Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The fact that our Savior entered the world so that we might receive redemption, that we might be forgiven and freed from the power and guilt of sin and have the promise that one day we'll be out, the, out of the presence of sin and that we are adopted into God's family. We're not just his friends, we're his children. We're his sons with that status and we're going to receive an inheritance. It's wonderful to receive an inheritance, uh, something that your father has secured for you and it's yours now and that's what we're getting. He has secured something for us. You know, pretty much everything there is in the universe, he's given it to his children. What a generous God we have. We receive the adoption as sons with the inheritance that comes from it. So this Christmas, wherever you are in your heart, your soul, your mind, whether you're just kind of going through the motions of Christmas and doing the typical things, or whether you're really hurting and struggling through the season, lonely and missing people. Turn to the gospel. Turn to Christ and remember. That's why we're celebrating here. And to take great comfort and get joy from the fact that, that our Lord, in the fullness of time, was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that they, we might receive the adoption of sons. Last week we sang, God rest you merry gentlemen. And, uh, and just a couple of years ago I realized that the, the first line, God rest you merry gentlemen, is not, it's not addressed to merry gentlemen. It's just addressed to gentlemen. The comma is after merry. God rest you merry gentlemen and gentlewomen. And it's an old English way of saying, God, keep you merry. May God keep you joyful. Gentlemen, don't let anything bring you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O oh, tidings of comfort and joy... I hope this is tidings of comfort and joy to you today as you remember that Christ our Savior was born to save us all from Satan's power and that may God keep you merry this Christmas. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the gospel, the good news of salvation. It's not our, our work, it's your work that you've accomplished and completed Lord, grant us a, a greater faith. Grant us faith. Help our unbelief, as the man said in Mark. Lord, we, we need faith. We need to trust fully and completely in your provision of salvation, in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we put our trust in you. We pray that you would cleanse us from sin by your work, by your great work of redemption. Cleanse us. Renew us, create in us, make us a new creation in you. 
Lord, we pray that we would remember that by faith we are united to you and therefore we can rejoice in the birth of Jesus. We can rejoice in the death of Jesus and we can rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus that, that all these things are ours as well. And Lord, one day we will enjoy that resurrection and that freedom, complete freedom from sin. And we thank you for that. We rejoice in it. And we do pray, Lord, that you would comfort everyone who is struggling this Christmas and through the holidays and that we would all rejoice in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.